On this edition of Larry the Golf Guy, we talk with Dan Rappaport, who is someone um, at a relatively young age uh, has made quite an impact in the golf media space. Um, he's a lot of fun to talk to, and I think uh, interesting to just, uh, as, as an example of the evolution of golf media, Uh, and media generally for that matter, um, someone who wanted to be a sports journalist um, and um, went to school at uh, uh, Northwestern with, of course, its fabulous Medill School of Journalism, uh, worked at Sports Illustrated, and then worked at Golf Digest um, as both those publications were themselves um, transitioning to our um, uh, away from print and, and more to an online um, existence, and um, but then pivoted in August of 2022 uh, and joined Barstool Sports, and he's on the Four Play podcast, which is a huge golf podcast, and does other work for them. He still uh, for Barstool does what he did at Golf Digest um, and SI, which is follow the tour. Um, and um, we talk with him about um, all the things he's seeing out there, what's going on with Live these days, um, and um, uh, he he's part of the Full Swing um, series on Netflix and, and what that's like and um, what it was like being the Tiger correspondent and um, non-traditional golf facilities, all sorts of fun topics. So... Uh, up next um, of Barstool Sports, uh, Dan Rappaport here on this episode of Larry the Golf Guy. Welcome to another edition of Larry the Golf Guy, and I am so pleased today to welcome to the show um, Dan Rappaport, um, who has um, already at a relatively young age um quite established himself in the golf media spaces we'll get into. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to do it, Larry. Thanks for having me. Um, So Dan and I kind of um, have a little bit of a connection here in LA. um, And maybe just to give folks a little bit of context for kind of how, uh, kind of your background and stuff, maybe chat a little bit about sort of growing up here and, and kind of how you first got started in the game. Yeah, for sure. Um, I grew up in in West Los Angeles. Uh, my dad was a, a very, very big golfer. Kind of got into it a little bit later in life. I think he started picking out, picking it up around thirty years old. Um, so he definitely made sure to get me started a little bit earlier than that. Uh, you know, he was he's been playing three, four times a week for as long as I can remember. And wow. yeah, it just sort of yeah, it just sort of <laughs> started as uh, you know a way for us to to spend time together. Um, you know, Sundays, Sunday mornings, go out, play with him and his friends at Brown Country Club, where where you're also a member. Um, and that's really where I grew up. I, I took to it very, very quickly. Uh, loved the game, loved getting to spend time outside with my dad. And, you know, progressively got better and better, started playing competitively kind of in high school. And yeah, just just been kind of riding the wave ever since that. So, um, yeah, so you played a little bit. I, I think it was, I saw somewhere you started at four. Is the time the first time you had your hands on a club? Is that right? Yeah, there's a there's a picture. I'm not entirely sure how old I was, but it, I, definitely not much older than that. There's a picture. My dad got me a set of clubs for Hanukkah one year. Wow. And there's a picture in our house of me holding those golf clubs. The golf bag's about the same size as I am. So, yeah, <laughs> I would guess I was about four or five years old. You know, played kind of 
casually until about 13 or 14 and things got a little bit more serious so you played in high school it sounds like and you played yep. you played junior tournaments and stuff generally yeah I, I played junior tournaments i played uh i was captain of the the brentwood school high school golf team wonderful uh, kind of half tried to walk on at northwestern but they were very very good and i wasn't i wasn't at a place where i was willing to to grind enough to to really win a spot I wasn't quite good enough to actually play. You know, I probably could have gotten on the team, but for me, that wasn't really worth it. So I uh, didn't play all that much in college. And then once I moved into the media space, kind of realized that it was a good opportunity for me to marry two of my passions, which is journalism and golf. And yeah, we've been off and running ever since. Awesome. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Northwestern. Um, obviously, great school generally particularly for journalism with Medill there. So did you go there knowing that you wanted to focus on journalism um, or or what was that process like? Yeah, 100%. Uh, all three of my older siblings went to University of Pennsylvania. And oh. my, dad went there as, my dad went there as well. I'm the youngest okay. of four. So that was kind of the assumption was that I was going to make it a clean sweep. Uh, but they were they were all a lot more number oriented than I was growing up. I was always more into language and and reading and writing and and that was kind of my thing. So absolutely, yeah. I, uh, I initially wanted to be a sports center anchor. That was kind of the goal. That was you know back then that was kind of the peak of sports media. Yes, it's obviously it's sure. changed a lot with the podcast space and with social yeah. media. But that's that's where I wanted to be. And yeah, basically just got to looking up where those guys went to college and it seemed like a lot of them went to Northwestern and visited the campus on a, a spring day. It was 65 degrees and sunny, which obviously is not normal. Uh, but it was just one of those perfect days where you see the kids frolicking around the lakefront, you see Chicago in the distance and you're just thinking this is the greatest place in the world. So yeah, I applied early decision there, wanted to do the journalism thing and, and started as soon as I got to school covering the football and basketball teams. Awesome. And and I should say, uh, you know, I spent the first 10 years of my professional life uh, having married someone from the Midwest um, in Chicago. Okay. Um, so um, I, I, I was at Latham Chicago office. Um, yeah, my from, uh, my fiance is from uh, the Northwest suburbs, which is actually a coincidence. We, we did not meet at Northwestern, just kind of coincidental, but getting married in Chicago. So Chicago definitely has a, I, uh, I, a, I a saw, saw that. So I was curious. If, so that, that's interesting. You didn't meet. I was wondering if you, because I figured she was from Chicago, you guys getting married there. And and listen, Northwestern, you know, obviously phenomenal school and gorgeous campus up in Evanston. Um, Chicago's a great golf town, great sports town. Um, you know, sports talk radio was just, you know, when I was, this is pre-podcast internet was just exploding. And, and um, it's, you know, and that was when the Bears and Ditka were, you know, larger than life. And so it's it's a great sports town. Um you know, I also I was born in West Hartford, so not too far from, you know, the worldwide leaders home in Bristol. Yeah. So I saw that you spent I, you had some great summer internships um, and in particular at ESPN. So you mentioned the Sports Center stuff. So you actually got a taste of working at ESPN, right? I did. Yeah, we lived. Uh, West Hartford was where all the young people at ESPN lived at the time. But we were in a a junior college dorm in Southington, Connecticut, which was uh, not not quite not a bustling metropolis. Yeah, I I, in, I interned there after my junior year of college. It was definitely cool. It was definitely a really good experience. I was in kind of a weird place in my life. I was dating a girl uh, who lived in New York and was kind of running there on the weekends. So it's a it's a bit of a strange one. Uh, not yeah. not the woman that I am marrying, but you know it was cool to it was cool to get a look at at this place that I had romanticized growing up. Um, but at the same time, 
you know, it kind of opened my eyes to I didn't really want to I didn't really enjoy how big it was. You know, it just it felt like there was so much bloat and so much um, bureaucracy, so to speak, that, I, you know, I just it just felt like it was at that time that was 2016 when when social media was really starting to take off and podcasts were starting to become a thing. And I I just got this sense that that the the network model was becoming a little bit obsolete and a little bit outdated. Yeah. Uh, and I remember that being one of my main takeaways from that summer. Yep, uh, absolutely. And I mean, I think back, you know, to Bill Simmons being there as part of Grantland, he left. I mean, you're totally fair what your observations were. So you, you graduate um, Northwestern um, and then you end up uh, first going at some point to Sports Illustrated and then, of course, Golf Digest. Um, two publications I've had for a subscriber for a very long time. Um, two iconic publications and, you know, and, and in particular SI, obviously more than just golf, but, you know, even yeah. just the golf space, Dan Jenkins, all the illustrious folks have been there. Um, but kind of in transition, as you know, alluded, as you alluded to with, with what's going on in the whole media space. So tell me, let's start with SI. I know you were involved with SI.com a little bit, you know, tell me what that experience was like. And as you're there and seeing the things are changing so fast at that iconic publication, right? Yeah, it was it was a crazy time. As, as, so basically, Northwestern had a program that was part of the journalism program called Journalism Residency, which was basically an externship. We were on the quarter system. You took a quarter off either your junior or senior year to work at a publication that you know it gave you lists. You applied. It was a matching process. I got SI, which was one of my first choices. Growing up, wanting to be a writer, as you mentioned, that that's the gold standard. That was what I grew up reading. Totally. That's where my yeah. my favorite writers worked. So, took a job there, uh, or did the internship there. Took a return offer, and I started out doing really nothing glamorous. I was working. I remember I was working nights and weekends, uh, basically just aggregating other people's work. It was it was you know it was weird time in in, in online journalism where you know, everything was about search engine optimization and trying to right. catch things on on search and so it was a lot a lot of my job was basically just rewriting adam Schefter's tweets um and that's what i was doing <laughs> i mean that's that's basically it's basically yeah. what it was and then uh, i got an opportunity I remember that, uh, there were murmurs around the office that golf magazine was being sold. So at the time, Sports Illustrated owned golf magazine right. and all of the golf content at Sports Illustrated was under was handled by the golf guys. So it was kind of this um, it was kind of this independent organization within the larger organization that handled all the golf content so that we were not doing any golf stuff. But I started to hear murmurs that they were for sale. Uh, Howard Milstein ended up buying right. the company, but they were for sale. And so I I, I figured it might as well shoot my shot. Uh, and I remember I, I went to our, the, my boss at the time, a guy called Ryan Hunt. And I told him, hey, look, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with Golf Magazine, but you know, I played golf growing up. I, I, I think I know a thing or two about the game. I would love to have a chance. If there is an opportunity, I would love to get a crack at it. And he, he kind of didn't really respond. And then Three weeks later, he came over to my desk and said, golf magazines being sold. Uh, you want to go to the players championship next week and start covering golf? And I said, sure. And that was basically it. There was no wow. guidance. I, I was 23 years old um, and I started you know, basically traveling on the PGA Tour. And within a year, I was writing 
stories for the magazine, which I remember when my first magazine story uh, got published, it was actually about about the the rollback issue, the ball being rolled back. So this was five years ago. That was well, that was how, already, how timely yeah. given the USGA yeah. announcement this morning. That's funny. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's what, that's why I was bringing it up. And I remember when that when that first got published, you know, it was it was incredible for me. I you know, seeing my name in that magazine that I grew up reading was just really, really special. And so I had a good year or two there where I was kind of the golf guy at SI. But again, it was against the backdrop of the company was being sold. There were layoffs all over the place in golf and or in, in media. Sorry. And, you know, it was just a really, really weird time. It felt like there was rumors of a new owner of more layoffs every day. And it was very it was very anxious. It was not a not a super fun time to work there, to be honest with you. Um and then I got thrown a lifeline. Uh, I had come across Max Adler, who is the editor of the of Golf Digest magazine, just just uh, you know doing a story or at a tournament. I don't ex- exactly remember where we first met, um, but I got a call from him one day. I was on the LIRR, the Long Island Railroad. I remember, and you know he said they they had just signed. Uh, Golf Digest had been bought by Discovery about five or six months earlier, and they had just announced this content deal with Tiger where he was going to become the playing editor again, and they were going to do uh, video content, instruction content, exclusive content, and they wanted someone, they wanted a consistent face to represent the organization to Tiger and to Tiger's camp. And so he called me and said, you know, do you want this job? You're basically be following Tiger around the around the world, ghostwriting for him. And, and yeah, and I, and, you know, I actually didn't really want to take it initially because I loved working at SI. I, you know, I, I had this, this, I guess naive dream in my head of of working there for thirty years and being the right. next Dan Jenkins or Rick right. Riley or Alan right. Shipnuck, and so the timing was actually was incredible. I got this offer on a Friday. The following Monday, shit really hit the fan at Sports Illustrated. That's when I saw articles. Okay, the CEO is out. You know they're being oh, sold to. They're being sold to. I don't even remember ABG. I think it was called Authentic yeah. Brands Group, and, it was and then a Brands there was like, Group, right? Right. Yeah, it was a Brands Group, and they were going to license it. You know, which was right. just a mess. And it was a mess, right? It was a mess. Still, is a mess. And I, I yeah. went to the, my boss, and I, you know, I, I sent him a message that weekend saying, "Hey, like, do we need to talk?" Because I, I had this offer, and I was initially just going to use the offer as leverage. I, I was told that's how you got a promotion. I, right. I wanted more money. I wanted to officially be made a writer. I was still like a web producer or whatever. The I wanted to be a staff writer. That was my goal, be a staff writer at Sports Illustrated. And I was told by a bunch of people at the company that the way to do that was to get another offer. So I got sure. this other offer and I'm thinking, okay, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the man now. I'm going to come in here with leverage. <laughs> and uh, so I go into his office and I say, he goes, let me guess, you have another offer. And I say, yeah, yeah, I do. And he goes, what is it? And I explain it and, you know, you're expecting them to say, we really want to keep you. We want to, what can we do? You know, let me, give me a couple of days. He goes, you should take it. Wow. I was like, yeah, I was like, oh, okay. And, and he basically explained to me what was going to happen at Sports Illustrated over the next couple months. Um, and it made my decision really easy. So I went to, went to golf digest. That was October of 2019. My first week of work. You want to talk about timing. I was, I had just started dating Sorry, we're getting a little personal here, but you know, that's okay. This podcast. is great. Go ahead. Yeah, I I had, I had just started dating my my current fiance uh, that summer, and she but she was still in law school. She was she's an attorney, uh, okay. as you are, 
And uh, she was still in law school at Georgetown and she was going into her last year and she had an opportunity to do a semester abroad in law oh, school, wow. which is, which is not common. I had never not heard common, before. Right. Yeah. Um, and so she, she went to, she went to Tokyo. That was where she did her. Yeah. Wow. It was very, very cool. And so I get this job from golf digest and they say tiger's playing next week, the Zozo championship in Japan. And you're oh, going. wow. Wow. So this was, this was like two or three months after we had started seeing each other and it, it kind of felt like fate really. Right. So I went to Japan tiger won that week. I it, was, it was yeah. electric. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then two months later I'm in Australia at the president's cup at Royal Melbourne and he's the best player there by far. And I thought, I thought at that point that, he, you know, he had won the Masters about six months earlier. Right. I thought he was right. going to, I thought he was going to win three or four more majors. Right. You know, he was playing, he was like the best player in the world. I thought I had just lucked into the most incredible job. And it was a really cool opportunity um, for, for a couple of years of, of traveling quite a bit, um, really, really making a name for myself on tour. And yeah, my job was to do the Tiger stuff, but I used the, the access to, to do other stories and to build other relationships. And then eventually, make a pretty significant uh, move to Barstool uh, about six months ago. Right. And we'll talk about that. Let's talk about the Tiger correspondent role for a bit. So um, or so you're following them all over. I mean, were you able to sort of, well, how, how should I say it? How close were you able to sort of get them? I mean, he's sort of famously with Steinberg and everything, you know, kind of he's got his people and, you know, it's, it's uh, how, how close were you able to get to him? Do you feel like um, in that role? Not very. Um, yeah, he definitely knew who I was. He, he got a nickname for me. He calls me, called me D hasn't called me that since I went to Barstool, but you know, that was really cool for me as a kid growing up in Southern California. You know, I was 13 when he won that U S open at Torrey Pines. So right, right. When I was really on getting one leg, golf. right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Right. When I was really falling in love with golf. So it was, it was definitely surreal. I, I built a good relationship with his team and never, never got to the, to any sort of really personal relationship with tiger. But again, you know, I, I came to him. He was 42 years old or whatever it was. He wasn't really looking for friends. Right. So, <laughs> it, yeah, it, it was cool. It was definitely cool to, to be close to him like that. And I definitely, you know, I definitely it definitely benefited my career, you know, being being in the know with his camp. But no, I you know, we weren't hanging out or anything like that. Yeah, I can understand that. So, I mean, you did so many uh, really, I thought, terrific pieces at Golf Digest. I mean, I and. I got to ask you about a couple of them that sort of I remember. I mean, the Morgan Hoffman piece with Code Costa maybe for people who may not be familiar with that, explain a little bit like that. And what was that like to go down there and into the jungles and find this guy? I mean, it must have been fascinating. It was fascinating. Um, I, you know, I knew I actually did a little uh, scorecard was was the, the the front part of the Sports Illustrated magazine. I, I honestly don't know if it still is. I haven't picked up a magazine, a Sports Illustrated in a long time, but there was a scorecard thing and I, in the beginning, and I, it was kind of like little short stories and, and graphics and statistics and all this stuff. And I did something on Morgan in like 2018 or 2019, just that he had muscular dystrophy, you know, had this, this terminal disease that doctors told him is incurable and, um, a terminal might not be the right word, but incurable where, you know, your yeah. body's just going to continue to wither away. Really, you'll get weaker and weaker. You won't be able to play golf. Right. He had started a foundation. To, to combat the disease. And it was just kind of this quick little, little story. And then I, I really didn't hear anything about him for like another year or so. And then I was on Instagram following a, a friend of mine looking at, and he had posted something from Morgan's charity 
uh, he had a charity outing every year. I think he still does at our cola here in over here in New Jersey. And so I asked the guy, I was like, oh, how's Morgan doing basically? And he said, he's doing really well. He's doing some crazy shit though. And I said, <laughs> what do you mean? And, and he said, oh, you know, he's, he's moved to Costa Rica. He's off the grid. You know, I heard he's drinking his own piss, a bunch of crazy, a bunch of crazy things. And so I, I thought to myself, oh, here's an opportunity to write something that's not just birdies and bogeys. Right. And exactly. so I called, yeah, I called Morgan and I said, you know, we, we spoke for a couple hours and, you know, I said, I, I would love to come down there and, and tell your story. You know, I'm not, I'm not here to, to judge. I'm not here to make fun. I, I just want to tell your story because I think it's really fascinating. He said yes, and it was a battle to get Golf Digest to agree to do it. They thought they thought that it was just going to be a sad story. That it was just going to be, oh, this guy like can't play golf anymore. Oh, it's so sad. And I, I I had this hunch after speaking to him that it wasn't sad at all. And so I went down there uh around Thanksgiving of 2021 and and I knew that we had gold. I knew it. And it's rare. You don't you don't get these stories all that often anymore of of the kind of gonzo journalism. And just it's just not how the media ecosystem works. Everything moves right. so fast now. Yeah. You know, so I was very grateful that they that they allowed me to go do that. Um, we wrote the story. It went it, it published in February of 2022. And um, <laughs> yeah, and, and it went live in February of 2022. The response was open. people really, really enjoyed it. And definitely, definitely was a story that I think put put me on the map a little bit within the golf space because it was it was something that you just don't see every day. Right. It was it was wonderfully done. Have you kept up with him at all, or what's going on with him these days? Not I really. I love trash. No. Well, he you know he made his cut. He played like three or four events last year. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. He he made a cut. Um, I saw him on the range at TPC Potomac. I was there doing some work at the Wells Fargo. Um, I sent him a couple text messages after the story went live. He didn't respond. I, you know, I don't, I, you know, he, he's his own guy. He does his own he thing. And, and I also think, yes, you know, the story wasn't um, sad, but I also challenged him on some things, which, you know, I don't know how he felt about that. So, yeah, yeah. you know, your, 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 um, your job as a, as a writer is not to, Please the subject. There, there have right. been plenty of really, really good um, pieces of content or articles where the subject probably isn't happy with what with what was written. I get the sense that Morgan probably took issue with some of the things I said, whatever it might be. But you know, grateful to him that he that he opened up to me and shared his story. Yeah, absolutely, and it was a fantastic piece. And the and the other one that I always remember, I think, was towards your end of your tenure there at Golf Digest that I always, I chuckled reading it was um, the getting kicked out of private clubs piece. That must have been a lot of fun to write. That was fun to write. That was actually Max Adler's idea. So I got to give him credit for that one. But yeah, everyone's, everyone's got a story, right? So that was a fun one. It was basically just like for a year, every time I played golf, I was just like, hey, you know, you guys know any fun, funny stories about people being kicked out of clubs and everyone's got one to share. So that was a good one too. Yeah. My, my job now is, is different for sure. Like those type of, you know, feature stories, um, aren't as much an emphasis where I am now. It's a lot more video content, which has been, you know, interesting for me to kind of understand the economics of it, which I, I think I do understand. And you, you got to kind of swallow your pride a little bit in the sense of, you know, what, what I grew up wanting to do uh, isn't really what 
isn't really where the momentum of the business is. And that's, that's, that's okay. You know, that's the thing that I think a lot of people um, who are a little older than I am have trouble wrapping their head around. Um, But, you know, I'm 28. So if I, if I wanted to be stuck in my ways and, and not evolve, you know, it would be a pretty long career for me. You know, that's a perfect segue because I wanted to talk about the pivots you made to Barstool last August, um, and and you've kind of teed it up beautifully. I mean, and so I want to talk about kind of what your thought process was, um, expand upon kind of the things you just you started touching on, because uh, it is a big pivot, right? I mean, you know, you 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 go to Medill, you're journalist, you're writing, you know, you're writing even long forms for like the Morgan Hoffman piece. Now you're sort of pivoting to this place where you know, and and you can talk better than I can about what you do. But, you know, a lot of it's podcasting, video content, um, you know, talk about that pro- that thought process. And now, what are we, you know, six plus months into it, kind of um, how's it played out so far? It's a completely different business. Um, at Golf Digest, I was, we were in the page view business, really. I mean, we were, that's how, that's how success was measured was, how many views did something get? And and the, the economic model there is you know, try and build up a large base of active users and sell that to advertisers. And so that was that was how the company made money. Now I was very, very far removed from that link though. I was a salaried employee um with a target bonus every year that in my three years, I got it every year, but we I never went above it. And so for me, it was like I felt like my profile was was um increasing or or I was you know I was getting bigger in the space and I wasn't getting rewarded for it and I felt right. like there were other people who were benefiting from my creativity and my content which you know I guess has been the model for a long time but there 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 were already um people who had stepped out of the classic legacy media model um, and we're we're kind of cutting out the middleman, and and that's kind of what I wanted to do. I I I didn't think that just because someone um, was twenty years older than me and had been in the company for ten years that they knew what content was and that they deserved to, you know, make more money than I did, for lack of a better term. And so um, it was a it was a process of of trying to understand the business, the barstool business, and our business is is multifaceted. We have. We have the number one golf podcast in the world, which is very, very profitable, right? Because podcasting is there. The overhead costs are, are basically zero. We, we have producers who work for us. You know, we have cameras and we have equipment, that sort of thing. But the marginal cost of, of doing a podcast is very small. You, right. We basically just press play. Right. Um, so that's profitable. We have a YouTube channel, which is a, a big area of growth for us. Uh, the YouTube golf sphere is, has, has exploded in the last five years. And those videos are also very profitable um, because we don't need to find distribution channels for them. It's it's free. Um, we post it on there, and then and then people see it. Uh, we have we have live events. We have the Barstool Classic this year. I think there's 30 tournaments. It's basically a member guest without a club, and so anyone and their partner can sign up. There's 30 events around the country. If you're in the top five, you advance. That's been a, a really good thing for us. And then we have merchandise, which is a, another really really big part of our business. Um, you know, we, we co-brand stuff with, with a couple of brands, but we started doing our own stuff, 
which has been in the the PGA Tour merchandise tent at the Players Championship and at wow uh, the Waste Management Phoenix Open, both of them, and it's sold out in both places. So wow, basically, you know, our business is a brand now, which is very very different. And and we find ways to monetize the brand, whereas before it was it was chasing page views so that someone else could make money. Right. Interesting. That's a really good way of putting it. I'm just sort of curious on the podcast, like how many listeners do you have for your foreplay podcast? You must have a sense of that, I'm sure. Yeah, I think it's about 200,000 per episode. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, and I'm familiar, you know, and there are other folks, I mean, the no laying up folks who yep. I'm sure you're very familiar with the fried egg folks. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, similar type, I mean, not as broad as Barstool, but in the golf sort of space sounds like somewhat similar. I mean, and I know the no laying up people have their merchandise and stuff. I mean, you're obviously part of a bigger group, but um, there are other folks that sound like pursuing similar things. 100%. It's, it's golf is a unique space to be in media wise because there there is um not necessarily of the 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 line between the professional game and the amateur game is is not that thick like you know we i cover professional golf and you know we have these events there's no other sport really where the media can can kind of do both right the guy who's covering the lakers is not going to have a basketball tournament that people are going to play in. It's just not how that sport works. So I think golf presents media entities, a unique opportunity to, to quote unquote cover or to be a presence in the game in multiple facets. And I think you're seeing it more and more. I, I Kevin Van Valkenburg, who, who, yes, I saw um, that. Yeah. Who, no he was, up. you know, at ESPN for, right. for, I think over a decade, I worked was a newspaper journalist before that. Um, I think he came to a similar conclusion that I did, and you know he's at no laying up now. So right. uh, it does feel like the content is becoming decentralized. Uh, you know, it, it used to be kind of Golf Digest, Golf Magazine. That's that's where the content came from. But the democratization of access through YouTube, through social media, not needing the distribution that a magazine has 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 really freed up a lot of people. For sure. And, and, you know, you mentioned Shipnuck a little earlier when we were talking about SI. I mean, even people, you know, closer to my age than yours. I mean, Alan and Michael Bamberger, I mean, longstanding, you know, uh, folks in the media. I mean, they're at Fire Pit Collective. Um, so they've kind of done a similar thing, you know, going off into a different direction like you have. So definitely seems to be what's going on. Um, I got to sort of, uh, I'd love to get your reaction. There's so many things going on in golf these days and, and you're right at the center of it in the media space and what you do. Um, I, I, I got to ask you about live. Um, so I'm just sort of curious. So we, you know, everyone's been following this people who don't even care about golf. I mean, live has sort of transcended that it's, you know, made it into the wall street journal and all sorts of other non-golf spaces. Um, and it's interesting, right? Because, you know, Jay Monahan just sort of came out and has announced sort of, you know, what this designated event concept is going to be. Cause it was kind of, I thought a little bit kind of hardly hatched last summer after that players meeting in Delaware. And, and, um, and, you know, we have, the version of it we're seeing this year, but now for next year, which is really going to be the full implementation because we're, you know, back, getting rid of the wraparound. We're back to the normal schedule. Um, so, you know, rather than, you know, I guess they used PIP this year to sort of for the fields and they have cuts. And now 
We're talking about 70, 80 limited person fields with no cut, which is interesting after, you know, one of the things they were raking live over the coals about was, you know, no cuts for the OWGR. But what do you think about all that um, and and uh, kind of where you think things are going to go from here with Liv? Yeah, um, I think last year there was there was so much interest in Liv, just the novelty of it. It was something new. And the rumor mill was was crazy last year. Remember, right. there was, oh, this guy's yeah. going to go or that guy's going to go. And they, yeah. they kind of picked off guys a couple at a time and it, it kept them in the news and but this year there's there's just there's none of that really because of the model that they have it's 48 players the same players all you know same teams all year so they don't have this rumor mill churning they don't have the attention that comes with new signings and so now it's it's basically product versus product and you know it does feel like live really lost a ton of momentum with the offseason they didn't really sign anyone major it's no disrespect to Mito Pereira or Thomas Peters or Brendan Steele, Sebastian Munoz, Danny Lee, Dean Burmester. You know, those are all accomplished players. They've all won golf tournaments and right. you know, they're successful professionals, but they wanted to sign multiple top 20 guys and they didn't get a single one in the top 30. And so there doesn't seem to to be much buzz around live these days. Yeah, you know, I think the PGA tour has responded, you know, it's it's important. Just to, to realize just how much has changed in two years oh, on yeah. the PGA Huge. Tour. I mean, Huge. no wraparound, 70 you know, fully exempt guys instead of 125. You've got these designated events. You've got the player impact program. You've got $500,000, which is usually a, essentially a universal basic income for guys. I mean, right. $5,000 right. know, for a miscut. There's, there's so many changes that I think the PGA Tour is definitely a much better product than it was a couple of years ago. Now, did they get some of those ideas from Liv? Absolutely, they did. Absolutely, they did. And uh, but it takes it often takes competition for for the leader in an in industry to innovate. And now that the PGA Tour has, I think going to Live is a lot less uh, enticing than it was twelve months ago. Because you, you, if you are one of these top guys in the PGA Tour, you're going to make so 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 much money. And you're not going to have to deal with the reputational backlash that right. has followed all of the lift guys. I mean, they've they've lost it. I don't think that they ex entirely knew what they were getting into. I think they were told. In fact, I know they were told that they're going to win in court no matter what, that there's no way that this ban would hold up. So they would be able to do both, you know, and these captains, the the, the whole live model is is predicated on the success of the team model. And so these captains have to go out there and find sponsors. They, you know, they have to. Right run right. a business which is not what they ever had to do before so exactly i think if we gave uh, brooks kepka some maybe walking neem you know these guys some truth serum i think they i don't know that they would have gone if these changes happened before they had to make the decision so you mentioned brooks i mean you know and who knows you know there's always the rumor mill and chatter and stuff in like any media space but um you know he more than anyone else um there's chatter about maybe regretting the decision i mean do you see him or anybody else in that ilk sort of trying to sort of do a u-turn at all and come back to the tour i, I don't i don't know um I, I have heard a few things about brooks so you know maybe it's a rumor mill churning maybe it's true i don't know um but you know these guys a lot of them are locked in for contracts and 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 golfers are very good it must be said at compartmentalizing and yes, so they have to be you know, <laughs> you, you, they, ha they have to be right you know tiger woods 
won a lot of golf tournaments, uh, you know, while having some other things on his mind for sure. Absolutely. And so, yeah. and so I think a lot of these guys are, are thinking to themselves, all right, you know, my deal runs through the end of 2024. We'll, we'll address it then. So I think probably some of them are, are in that mold, but yeah, the, the contracts are not forever. And so there are going to be guys for sure that want to come back and, it's going to be very interesting to see how the the players who stayed loyal to the PGA Tour, you know, I think of I think of someone like Hideki Matsuyama who turned down something like three hundred million dollars, and you know, how is someone like him going to feel if uh, you know an Ian Poulter comes back with fifty million in his pocket and is able to play these tournaments? So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, it's I mean, my time in golf, you know. I mean, I go back with Nicholas and Palmer, but the version of that, you know, the last 20, 30 years, of course, has been Tiger and Phil, and it's sort of been um, interesting. I mean, Tiger, to me, you know, um, always everyone just had a huge, immense respect for his game, of course. I mean, you could debate whether he or Nicholas is, is the GOAT, but, you know, it's it just incredible from the time he was two to be on Michael Douglas's show and everything. And Phil... You know, um, but 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 he but Tiger was sort of distant, you know. I mean, he wasn't didn't sort of create the kind of warmth. Whereas Phil, you know, more of a you know, obviously not the same record, but he was clearly the number two and you know, kind of a more of a man of the people. And I mean, God, I don't know if you were at Kiowa when you know he won in 2021. I figured you probably were, but I mean, I've never seen I mean, that was just why I'm sure people were a little lubricated too, but you know, that was just wild those last few holes and just the crowds and everything. And he goes from that, you know, which is, you know, not even two years ago to sort of, you know, being this pariah and, you know, of course, all the quotes last year, and then he ultimately goes. And I mean, do you think he has any regrets? You know, of course, in the meantime, Tiger has become this beloved figure. And, you know, it's sort of funny, don't you think? Kind of the role reversal a little bit? It's it's definitely changed. It's definitely changed. Um, I don't really get him as a person. Uh, you know, I read Alan Shipnuck's book, which I thought was yeah, tremendous. It was. Yeah, I agree. And 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 I'm not sure that I understand him anymore after reading the book. Uh, you know, I he he you mentioned Kiowa I mean that was that was one of the great feats in the history of the game yeah and he was on top of the world he had won a major yeah. championship at 50 I mean, maybe 51 whatever it might be yeah it's something I mean, that no one else has done before how easy it would have been for him to just ride off into the sunset and totally. and become an Arnold Palmer right one of these elder statesmen of the and game become a Ryder Cup captain and you know all that was in yeah. his future for sure yeah but you know Clearly, the guy the guy feels really strongly about this. Um, you know whether that's motivated by some debts that he needed to pay off. I, you know I don't think we know for sure, but he's dug his feet in. He's definitely dug his feet in, and you know I think if there was a time for him to have remorse, it probably would have been after those first comments came out about you know the scary mother right. efforts. Right, right, right. And instead, he apologized to the Saudis. Right, that was kind of did. his response. So. Yeah. I don't think he has I don't think he has regrets because I don't think he thinks like you and I do. Yeah. I think you're probably right and I'm um I'm forgetting is it Bucky Walters I'm forgetting the name of the Vegas um 
uh, gambler um, that he had the relationship with that's supposed to be coming out with a book. We'll probably find out more about Phil's debts. I mean, Alan alludes to it a little bit in the book and, you know, it maybe was a money driven decision, but, but we shall see. Um, it is, it is interesting. It's kind of sad, but you know, he, 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 you're right. I mean, he's doubled down and then some, and so um, you're, you're totally right. Let me sort of turn a couple, two other quick things before I let you go. I mean, Netflix, full swing, you're in it. Um, and um, what was that like? And kind of what's your take on, on their first season? Yeah, cool experience. I feel very fortunate, kind of right place, right time situation. Um, yeah, just 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 started hearing rumors that there was going to be the show. It was announced, um, managed to get in contact with the executive producers, a guy called Chad Mum. Um, played golf over at Lakeside in California. Yeah, a member yeah right there. around the corner. Yeah, yeah. We had a great day, and um, yeah, they were looking for someone who was a little bit younger than than the normal golf journalist, someone who had a, a little bit of a fresh take, but also someone who was who was out there and who was respected. You know, was out on tour and and was doing things on the ground and was plugged in. So, yeah, I guess I fit the bill, and it was really cool watching them all year. Really interesting to see what they what they ended up using, what they didn't use. You know, I sat for. 10 to 12 to 14 hours of interviews. And, you know, they probably wow. used a total of, you know, seven or eight minutes or whatever it might be. Oh so, my gosh. That's a huge yeah, yeah. amount. Yeah. Oh yeah. But that's, that's what they do. And so I, I thought it was great. I thought they did a really great job. You know, you, you had to step out outside of the bubble that you and I are in, which is this, you know, we're golf lifers, right? We're diehards. Right. And so, right. You're right. You know, th- that I, I understand that people like that cringed when they had to be explained what a par was or you know yes, what the cut exactly, was but exactly. but this show this show was not really for us it was it was trying to broaden the audience and i think given the success of the show it's hard to argue that they didn't do that so i thought they did a really good job i'm really excited for season 2 we're, we're already filming and i think players um if you look at drive to survive which has been the natural comparison given you know netflix and given it's the same right. production company right uh, Ferrari and, and Mercedes didn't participate in season one because they wanted to kind of see how things were going to go. Once they saw the positive impacts they had, once they heard word of mouth from other drivers that, hey, you know, these guys actually aren't that cumbersome, you know, they're not, they don't bother me that much. Guys leaned into it. And I think we're seeing that this year already that guys are more comfortable with it. So it's super exciting. I feel really, really fortunate to be involved. And, and yeah, looking forward to season two. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so, I mean, you kind of alluded to it there. I was going to ask you the players' reaction. I mean, if that because you're on tour, you know these five. I mean, pretty positive. It sounds like. Yeah, I think very positive. Look, I you know they're not. This it's an entertainment product, right? It's not. It's not a journalistic document. They're not. They're not. They're not in this to burn anybody because that would jeopardize their access to make future seasons, right? right? So if they if they sign up someone for the show, make that person look like a prick, then other people are going to be less likely to sign up for the show. So I, I don't think they're out there to burn anybody. And and I think the players, you know, especially the some of the lesser known ones, uh, Joel Damon comes to mind. Yeah, I mean, yes. what wa- watching Joel around the golf course now, it's it's totally different than it used to be before. He's a fan favorite. Same with Sahithi Gala. Um, you know, guys who who these who these casual fans had no idea who they were just a couple months ago are, are now stars. So yeah, I think the Netflix effect is very real. I've noticed it for sure. Definitely getting, you know, recognized and called out a lot more than ever before. Um, you know, Netflix is a scale. I think it's 240 million subscribers. It's <laughs> unlike anything that the golf has seen. So it's, it's great for us to be in as many living rooms as we are. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's awesome. Um, and I'll get you out of here on one of the last topic. Um, non-traditional golf facilities so i am 
a lot older than you. I'm kind of, you know, old school in a lot of ways with the game. Um, and, um, but I look at Top Golf, um, which I finally had um, uh, an experience with, and I loved it. Um, mm -hmm. It was just a blast last fall. And um, and I've read about Five Iron, um, which I think started in Manhattan. I'm guessing big, you're big probably over familiar here. with it. Um, mm -hmm. But they just seem to come with kind of be the future of the game, at least in terms of a way to get a bridge to get people interested in golf. But curious kind of your observations on it. Yeah, I heard a stat. um the week of Scottsdale that this was the first year that more golf shots were hit outside of a traditional 18 hole facility than inside. Interesting. So yeah, yeah. It seems like a kind of a hard to wrap your head around stat, but you know, I, I have, I have two thoughts on the matter. Number one, I, I agree. I think it's a, it's a great bridge. It's a great introductory point. You know, golf is, a, has a lot of barriers to entry, you know, not, not just, you know, financially aside, just time and space, right? If, right. if you're, if you're someone who lives in in downtown Manhattan, the notion of going to play 18 holes, you're like, where where do I even start? I mean, I gotta I gotta rent a set, I gotta pay yeah. a greens fee, I gotta I gotta block out six hours, right? I gotta I gotta drive to wherever the golf course is. It's just it's just too much, right? Um, but everyone is willing to carve out an hour or two for themselves and for for sort of fitness or well being. That's that's a big trend, and so. Positioning golf as okay, golf doesn't have to be a seven-hour day where you go, have to get out of the city. You can go to a place that's a couple blocks down the road and and hit some balls for free, or not for free, but you know for a lot less expensive than it would be to go play. I think there's a really good thing, but I you know I, I I hope and I don't think this will happen, but I just really hope that that traditional experience doesn't go away because I I do think there is something about um plugging out for four or five hours yes. and really enjoying people's company and, and just touching grass. You know, we spend so much of our life looking into screens that exactly. I do think golf, I do think that golf is a really nice antidote for the kind of TikTok media, you know, ecosystem that we live in. So I think we can do both. I don't, I don't see any reason why they need to be mutually exclusive. You know, I think there will continue to be championship, you know, level private, you know, golf, resort golf that sort of thing which is which is more of the old model and i think there will continue to be more of these um top golf and drive shack and pop stroke and these things that 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 keep popping up and 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 are are just easier for beginners to to swallow absolutely no i agree um hey dan this has been fantastic i really i know how busy you are and your career is just continuing to skyrocket and i Love watching it, um, and uh, and we'll become a regular listener to Foreplay. I promise you. Um, I I sort of love the the golf podcast space, um, and um, and and you're a big part of it. Thank you so much for making the time today. I really appreciate it. Yep. Thanks for having me. Happy to do it.